In just a moment, we're going to read um, a part of the story of the book of Acts, the the movement of the Holy Spirit through the early church as they struggled, particularly uh, the bishop, St. Peter, um, here in this story, um, when what they feel called to do uh, no longer matches the scriptures that they were raised up in. It's quite a dilemma. Let's see how the early church um, started to look at this in Acts chapter 10. Let's share in God's good word together. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our scriptures this morning says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. No partiality. All that is required is to do what is right. Who decides what is right? For us, Jesus decides. So what did Jesus say about homosexuality? Nothing. Nothing. My name is Mark Foster, and I'm the founding and senior pastor here. And if you'll take out your sermon notes, I'll do my best to describe how we got here uh, to this discussion, why it is important, and what we can do about it. Uh, this morning, as I, as I got up and I was uh, preparing, uh, I came across Deuteronomy 4, which I think is a good word for me and for all of us. The scripture says, do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord. So I will do my best today not to tell you more than the scripture says and not to tell you less than what the scripture says. And if you are here uh, ready for a breakthrough moment uh, that the Bible is really definitive about this on homosexuality, you are going to be disappointed because it's not in there. Or if you want it to say that, you're going to be disappointed because it's just not in there if you take a serious reading of the text. So first, let me uh, say this, uh, that this sermon is not any fun for me uh, at all. I know that people are divided around this issue uh, in the church, in the nation, uh, and around the world. I don't take it lightly. Those of you who have been with us for a number of years know that I don't normally use uh, notes right in front of me, but I'm not winging it today, okay? So um, John and I have been working on this sermon um, since June. Uh, John did an amazing job on Friday night. We're so proud of you. We thought you did just an excellent job. Um, And so I I commend his sermon to you as well. That's on the podcast. Um, And we have prayed together, and we've prayed together, and we've studied, and we prayed some more together. Um, And I I just can be more proud of that um, what John has done. And that we want you to know that one church in Acts 2, we're all one church, and we're speaking with one voice. So how did we as the United Methodist Church get to this point where we are now? Uh, with groups, churches, talking about separating from each other over homosexuality. Uh, first of all, you should know we're not the first denomination to be in this spot. 
Um, our forerunners uh, in the Episcopal Church, also in the Presbyterian Church, in the Lutheran Church, they've all split over this issue previously. Um, but I want you to hear what Levitt Weems of Wesley Theological Seminary describes how we got to this point in the United Methodist Church. Um, first of all, we were founded in 1968, um, so we're 50 years old. Um, the first public debate on homosexuality came in 1972 at General Conference. General Conference is the gathering of United Methodists all around the world every four years normally. And there was a proposal in 1972 at that General Conference to add to the social principles of the church these words. Homosexuals, no less than heterosexuals, are persons of sacred worth. That's what was brought to the General Conference. At that conference, having added these words, the conference added additional words, which include these. Though we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. Only four years later, in 1976, General Conference added these words. We do not recognize a relationship between two persons of the same sex as constituting marriage. And then, in 1984, the General Conference addressed ordination. And they said this, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be accepted as candidates, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. And then uh, we met again four years later in 88, and then um, in 92, and then in 96. Um, By the way, this issue did not go away uh, in those years either. In 1996, General Conference uh, banned ceremonies to be celebrated of homosexual unions by clergy or, or in United Methodist churches. And so really since 1996, it's basically been um, clergy, John, uh, Brandon, and myself, we cannot do uh, gay weddings or unions, um, and we can't have somebody else come in on our property and do them either. Uh, that's, that's, that's the official stance of the church. So in 2016, uh, by that time people were very, very tired of this conversation uh, and, and sort of the fight and the feeling that you couldn't get anything else done. So in 2016... Uh, the General Conference asked the bishops of the church to create a commission on a way forward to help us move through this and pass this. And so they proposed bringing a special call General Conference where only human sexuality would be talked about in February of 2019. So that was just last February. And the commission brought three plans. The One Church Plan, the Connectional Conference Plan, and the Traditional Plan. The One Church Plan, supported by most of the bishops, recognize the diverse theological and scriptural understandings of our global denomination. It removed negative and restrictive language about homosexuality. And the One Church Plan also stated that no annual conference or bishop or congregation or pastor must act contrary to their convictions. It never made it to the floor. What came to the floor was the traditional plan. And that plan strengthened current language in the Book of Discipline, which is our rule book, concerning human sexuality, and it increased sanctions and punishments and provided a process for those who cannot live within the discipline to allow them to leave. Um, the, the, if you read about this, this is known as the gracious exit. How do, how do you allow those who want to leave to leave? So what happened at General Conference in February was that the traditional plan passed 438 to 384. That's roughly 53% to 46%. What's odd, though, is that roughly two-thirds of the U.S. delegation favored the one-church plan that never made it to the floor. There were enough votes from conferences outside the United States, um, largely in Africa uh, and some Eastern European countries and the Philippines, to carry the traditional plan forward. And it's worth noting that some of the delegates outside the U.S. come from countries where homosexuality remains a crime. 
And so certainly they view homosexuality different than the United States. Last Wednesday, September 18th, was the deadline for legislation for the next general conference, which will be held in May 2020. And there are two groups who are meeting to prepare for this next meeting. One group is called United Methodist Church Next. That's hosted by Reverend Adam Hamilton of Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, which is our largest United Methodist Church in America. That's going to be this Wednesday, September 25th. Uh, and Alan, your SPR chair, and myself will go and be there and represent us. The other large group is the Wesley Covenant Association, which will be hosted uh, by my friend, Reverend Tom Harrison, at Asbury United Methodist Church in Tulsa, and that will be on November 9th. And Acts 2 plans to have representatives at both of those meetings to best understand and prepare what will come before us uh, in May. So, you might think, well, that's fine for you, pastors. You know, you have to talk about that, but why us? I mean, can't we just come to church and, and not deal with this. Well, I'd, I would love to say that, but, but here's the reality in our elementary schools. We have little kids um, coming out to other little kids saying things like, you know, real Christians eat at Chick-fil-A. Or perhaps progressives would say, no, real Christians eat at Popeye's. But literalists would say, no, you know that Christians have to eat at churches. <laughs> Just trying to lighten it up. It's a heavy topic here, friends. Church is fried chicken. Okay, anyway. Okay. So in our series, Making Sense of the Bible, uh, in these three past weeks, we start with this. Read this with me. The Word of God is Jesus Christ, and the words of the Bible tell us about that Word. Therefore, when we study the words of the Bible, we always look behind, in, and through those words for God's Word, Jesus Christ. So most of the time when we talk about tough issues, like money, divorce, violence, we go to Jesus and we follow. And in Acts 2, we have one question for those who would become members. We ask this at every exploration. Do you want to follow Jesus? That's, that's, that's what we're about. Do you want to follow Jesus? This is the most important question for us. Because we are making disciples, actual followers of Jesus, not simply believers. And we do this for the very transformation of the world, of ourselves and of the world around us. So our challenge for today is that Jesus does not talk about same-sex attraction at all. It's just not there. Now, some of my traditional friends and colleagues will point to Matthew 19. And they'll say that Jesus clearly states that marriage is between one man and one woman. Okay? And they're well-meaning. I'm not knocking that. But let's look at this passage together. You can decide for yourself. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to, what's the key word? Divorce his wife for any cause. He answered, Have you not read that one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together in marriage, let no one separate, because the topic is what? Divorce. They said to him, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal, of dismissal and to divorce her? And he said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted. That's Jesus' point and his response. That Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unfaithfulness, unchastity, and marries another commits adultery. So is that passage about... What's that passage about? It's not even about marriage much less homosexuality. It's just not. Now, that doesn't promote homosexuality. It just doesn't cover it. You see the difference? So it just, it's just not there. 
See, Jesus addresses divorce, not homosexuality. Controversy over different understandings of Scripture is nothing new. This has been around um, since the beginning of the church. And the first controversy is found in the text that we read together this morning, chapter 10. Should we include Gentiles in the church? Should we include non-Jews in the church? Now, Peter had been raised faithful to the Scripture that would forbid him to go into a Gentile house. You couldn't do it. It would make you unclean. And so Peter was amazed when the uncircumcised Italian Cornelius received the gift of the Holy Spirit and came to faith. Peter argued with God about uh, breaking the Scriptures. He's like, no, I've, I've never done that. And the voice of God through a vision says to Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And if you were to go on in the next verse, you would see that this happens three times. And around here, we know that when God really wants to say something to us or when Jesus wants something to be known, you hear it three times in a row. Right? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. That's the way Jesus does it. When God speaks, God will speak in these three times. Go, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Three times, not just once. God is very consistent in God's messaging for things that he wants us to know. So, um, a second, now, now, before we move on, note that the first thing that happens after Peter actually baptizes Cornelius and his group is found in Acts chapter 11. I want you to see what happens. Now, the apostles and believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, those who were following what Peter already knew, they didn't say, wow, that's great. We've got new people in the church. No, they criticized him. And then they said, well, why, why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? It wasn't, well, that's really great that God's doing a new thing. It's, what were you doing in their house in the first place? Because you know as well as I do, that's not okay. You can't do that. It makes you unclean. It's against the law. So that's the first one. The second division is around women and, and their role in church. Um, so here's the question for us. Is it 1 Corinthians or is it Galatians? Paul writes both. He writes both of them. Both letters to certain cities. So is it um, in 1 Corinthians that women should be silent in the churches? For they're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. The law also says, is there anything they desire to know? Let them ask their husbands at home. Is that what you believe? Our children's department's going to be in big trouble if that's what you believe. Right? Or is it uh, Galatians? There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer male and female. And read this last part with me. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So Paul says one thing here, another thing over there. Both Paul, same author, different churches. So are these particular, are these particular teachings or these universal teachings? I would, I would remind you about women in the Bible, that they were last at the cross, first at the tomb, and first to share the resurrection story Easter morning. A third division is over slavery. There are more than 300 scriptures that affirm slavery. It's not just that they're mentioned, it's that it's affirmed. Exodus 21 says this, When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there's no punishment. The slave is the owner's property. Y'all okay with that? No. When John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, spoke of slavery, he saw it for the evil that it was. And he called it out. He called an end to slavery. Even though the God of Exodus frees the slaves in Egypt, slavery was still normative in the Bible. It was an accepted practice. And today, we don't think slavery is God's will. 
because it's talked about so prevalently in the Bible. We think slavery is wrong. Seriously, slavery is wrong. Right? Oddly, when it comes to homosexuality, there are less than eight verses in the entire Bible. In all 66 books, more than 31,000 verses, there are less than eight verses that address homosexuality. Now, here's what theologian uh, Richard Hayes says. He's a conservative about uh, the amount of Scripture addressing homosexuality. He says this, The Bible hardly ever discusses homosexual behavior. There are perhaps a half dozen brief references to it in all of Scripture. In terms of emphasis, it is a minor concern, in contrast, for example, to economic injustice. Would that the passion presently being expended in the church over the question of homosexuality were devoted instead to urging the wealthy to share with the poor? Imagine if that was the ongoing cultural debate about how we should care for one another. You see, friends, these divisions are about biblical interpretation, not biblical authority. Will you say that with me? These divisions are about biblical interpretation, not biblical authority. Since I went to seminary in 1992-93 up through 96, this debate has been raging on, and there are very, very smart people who look at this differently. They look at the same text, and they come to different conclusions. These are people that have spent their life in the Greek language, in the Hebrew language, and they simply don't agree. And we just need to own that. We need to be aware of that. It's not that some people are right and some people are wrong. It's not that some people are smart and some people are dumb. It's that everybody looks at the same scriptures and it's not clear enough for people to have a clear answer. And so the other things start to come into play. I have friends and colleagues that love Jesus. They've given their lives to serving the church under the authority of the Bible that they cherish. It's not about authority. I think part of the difference is how they view God as taught through their parents, their grandparents, Sunday school teachers, generations they lived in, their culture, and their church teaching. That's what influences this, this discussion uh, beyond the Bible. The way we live is profoundly shaped by our picture of God. So, let me ask you, what is your picture of God? When you think of God, what does that look like? In each of our hearts and minds, there is drawn our picture of God, formed over the years through our interactions, our joy, our pain, our suffering, our sorrow, our rescue, our redemption. And if we're not careful, we can view God as a passive spectator sitting in the balcony of our lives, just waiting for us to perform for him, to get it right or to get it wrong. And we can forget that Jesus is a God who came to us, came to us out of love because we can never get to him. We don't have a God who is distant. Jesus is not waiting for us to like, oh, can I clap for that? Can I not clap for that? No, Jesus is the gift of Emmanuel, God with us here and now. My friend Trevor Hudson taught me that our picture of God can be redrawn. Just because you think of God one way today doesn't mean that you can't redraw that picture. He tells the story of Cardinal Basil Hume, Archbishop of Westminster. And Cardinal Hume recalled how he had been raised by a good but severe mother. Constantly she would say to him, If I see you, my son... Stealing an apple from my pantry, I'll punish you. And then she would say, if you take an apple and I don't see you, Almighty God will see you and he will punish you. And as his Christian experience matured, his picture of God gradually changed. Eventually he realized that God might have said to him, Basil, my son, 
why don't you take two? I have more than enough for you and everyone else. My son, take two. Take two. Your picture of God makes a huge difference of how you read the texts, how you understand your life, particularly when we come to the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, what does the Bible say? Christians have linked the story of Sodom uh, to homosexuality today because the men of Sodom asked to have uh, the two strangers handed over to them for sex. The problem is that the story is not about homosexuality at all. Most scholars simply agree on this. Uh, let's take a look at the, at the scripture, if we can. Before they went to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people the last man surrounded the house, they called the lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Know them is a euphemism for have sex with them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who are virgins. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Perhaps one of the most disturbing scriptures in all the Bible. It speaks to patriarchy and to gang rape. Not homosexuality. If a man today goes to prison and he's raped, no one says you're a homosexual. They say you're a victim of violent crime. And the men in that story would not have thought of themselves as homosexuals. They were not about loving relationships. They were about domination and submission and, and putting a stranger in their place to demean them. It's about violence. There's the, an actual worse story, if you can imagine that, in Judges 19. They both describe something similar. They describe violence, not homosexuality. Adam Hamilton, in his book, Making Sense of the Bible, he actually writes this. He says, is this story really about loving, committed, homosexual relationships? No. No. And most scholars just, they, they just like, of course not. No, that's not what that story's about. There are two other scriptures, though, in the Old Testament um, that are trickier, so to speak. And they are meant to set Jews apart from Canaanites. Uh, last week we talked about this entire region of Cana, uh, 31 city-states, and, and how God was allowing and encouraging his people to take that region. So these verses in Levitical law specifically forbid a man laying with another man as with a woman. Again, many scholars will talk about patriarchy at the time, that you would never want to demean yourself by doing something a woman would do. Uh, dishes, laundry, sweeping the floor, anything. And this would be along that same line. It was about your manhood, uh, not about the sex act necessarily. Biblical scholars believe this was really about maintaining that culture of patriarchy, dominance over women. These laws were particularly or peculiar to the Hebrews and to the ancient time hundreds of years before Jesus. It was not intended as a universal morality for all people at all times, but was necessary for exclusion of foreign tribes. If you're going to war with people, you need to keep yourself separate. You have to have some categories that your people don't do if other people do. The clearest example that I could think of this, uh, which isn't perfect, but think of it in the same category as circumcision. It's a way to mark your separateness from other people. Oh, you belong to us. You, you're not like that. You're like this. You belong to us. It's about separateness. Now, here's, here's the thing that's interesting. Neither Jews nor Christians obey the holiness codes today. We don't. They don't. Christians today eat shrimp and crab and celebrate family things at Red Lobster after church. Isn't that true? 
This is clearly forbidden in Leviticus. Okay, not Red Lobster. That's not forbidden. But Crab Fest, definitely forbidden. Okay? We also don't kill divorced women. And we don't kill children who talk back to their parents. As prescribed in this same Levitical section. We, we just don't. It is odd to me how strongly some Christians hold on to Leviticus 20.13. And how loosely they hold on the codes of the other things of the same culture and time. So this is what it says in 2013. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, I don't know of any United Methodist minister who holds to this scripture in its entirety. While some colleagues believe homosexual acts are wrong, I don't know any United Methodist folks who believe the death penalty should be reinstated for homosexuals. Not one. But this leads me to an intellectual challenge. How do we expect to hold up one half of one verse of a scripture as timeless and the other half as something we can let go of? In the same scripture, not just in the same book, but in the exact same verse. We're going to hold on to half and let go of the other. That's troublesome to me. How do you do that? That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 9, uh, and Acts 15 is not Paul, but it's, it's in there. In the New Testament, there are challenges to clarity as well. First, Jesus didn't say a word about homosexuality other than all people are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Second, Paul says one thing to one city and another thing to another church in another city. More maddening with Paul is when he comes to a very difficult concept like the inspired word of God that we looked at last week or same-sex activity this week. Paul makes up words. He just makes them up. As scholars have looked at this, they can't find the word that Paul uses any time before he uses it the first time. The term sodomites in the first Corinthians text in the NRSV is misleading. Uh, One, it doesn't derive from the name Sodom. And rather, it's a combination of Greek words likely coined by Paul himself. These are big concepts that they didn't have words for. Third, Paul was only familiar with two kinds of homosexual acts in his day. One, where older wealthy Greek men would buy young boys as sex slaves. Clearly wrong. Everybody knew that then. We know that now. And two, when Greco-Roman men would visit temple prostitutes where group sex was common as a form of worship to bring fertility to the region or the home. So what Paul writes about in Romans 1 is the most clear prohibition of homosexuality in the Bible. It says this, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, an idol, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So that's how he starts. He's talking about people who are going to temples, are part of these pagan cults, and because they've turned away from God, here are the symptoms of the problems of that sin. So he continues. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. And then he lists as many as he can think of. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for other, another man. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own person the due penalty for their error. Yes, it's right there, black and white. That's true. But you have to understand the context with which, with which Paul is describing this action. He's listing examples of the consequences of sin or turning away from God. Paul is not prescribing the acts themselves as the essence or initiator of sin. Paul is listing every sin together as a sign of their rejection of God and returning to idol worship. 
So people who go to the temples of Aphrodite or other Roman or Greek gods, for example, are described as deceitful, gossips, arrogant, murderous, covetous, and sexually immoral, all wrapped up together. New Testament scholar Victor Furnish, who was at my school of theology when I was there, he says this, even the most sophisticated thinkers of the day had no concept of sexual orientation and so never had the opportunity to consider these acts through that lens. As we, they just didn't see uh, committed loving relationships over time between two people of the same sex. It wasn't known in their day. And then we come to Acts 15.20. Now this is particularly both interesting and painful to me. Because in the book that we've been using as a, a source, Adam Hamilton doesn't talk about this text at all. He, he just leaves it out completely. As do most progressives uh, and even centrists. They, they don't even associate this text with homosexuality. While at the same time, traditionalists will say that this is the definitive verse to end the discussion when it comes to church life. Acts 15.20 reads like this. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. The key word there is fornication. In the Greek, it's pornea, which is where we get our word pornography. Uh, it, It elicits thoughts about all sorts of promiscuity across the board. Now, you could argue that homosexuality is included in that, which conservatives uh, do, traditionalists do, uh, but it's not specific to homosexuality. So this is the Jerusalem Council, and James, the brother of Jesus, makes his decision to allow non-Jews into Christianity. This is big. That's how we're here today. So big, in fact, that in Acts chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, they all lead up to this decision with Peter having his heart changed by the Holy Spirit to welcome the outsider. Then Paul welcomes the outsider. Then Mary, the mother of Jesus, and James, all on the same page about widening the circle of Jesus followers. However, the question was how to welcome in these outsiders without losing the core Jewish sect who held all their same beliefs. How are you going to welcome these people in without completely blowing up the people that are the core of the church at that time. So James is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He looked at what was the core of these Jewish believers, and he demanded that the Gentiles outside would refrain from practices that would threaten the existence of the Christian movement itself. So the pagan temple practices had four pieces to them, four impurities. One was idolatry. He knew that would never fly in the church because it's, right? The first thing is the Lord is one, have no other gods before me, can't do it. So idolatry is out. That's part of the pagan piece. Sexual immorality, the Greek there again is pornea. Not homosexuality, but it could include it. Uh, and, and most scholars will say that pornea used here probably, it's not super clear, but probably, if they had to guess, refers to temple prostitution because it's in the same category with everything else around temple prostitution. Third is eating food with blood in it, which was also about the temple. And four strangled food. All of this is a part of the pagan temple worship. So you look at that and Paul says, no, you can't, you can't do anything associated with the other gods. Okay. So what does that tell us about homosexuality? Not much. You have to look at your tradition. So scripture is not all that helpful, to be fair. I know you're like, really? We spent almost 30 minutes and you gave me a bunch of nothing. Trust me, I spent over 100 hours on this sermon. I mean, I've worked my tail off to be before you today with everything that I am, and it is just not clear to me. And, and if it is to you, you're doing better than I am, and you're doing better than most scholars. The, our tradition says this. John Wesley says this. We should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. So, friends, if, if we don't agree on this, 
That's okay. It's okay. I, I don't expect that we will. I just ask that as I'm doing my best to love you wherever you find yourself, I'd ask that you would love me and your other brothers and sisters the same. So, the Methodist Episcopal Church split in 1844 over slavery. We did. I'm not proud of it, but we did. Uh, John Wesley was against uh, um, slavery. Uh, Then we come to women. John Wesley was way ahead of his time. He licensed a woman to preach in 1761, but the rest of the church didn't catch up for almost 200 years. We didn't ordain women until 1956. Uh, I talked to my dad about this, and uh, when he went to uh, Perkins School of Theology in 1955, there were no women ordained pastors in the Methodist Church. Uh, Today, if you were to go uh, to that same school, more than half would be women. It's just a different day. So that's our tradition. Uh, And when it comes to homosexuality, we're still uh, separated on that. We just can't seem to figure it out. So when your scripture doesn't work and your tradition isn't that helpful, we go to reason. I want to invite Kyle Kinister. He's a medical doctor and a good friend. He's been with us for about 16 years now. And uh, I just wanted Kyle to be able to share, um, not from a scriptural standpoint and not from a traditional standpoint, but from reason, um, his thoughts. And the reason we do this is in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe that we view the world through scripture first, the lens through which we see everything, then the tradition and reason and experience um, help us, particularly when the scripture's fuzzy. So I thought maybe you could help us. Uh, No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Remember um, a couple years ago when I was finance chair and I got up here and talked about everybody giving more money? I'd rather do that. Uh, <laughs> right. Than this, but right. there's where we're at. So just to start with a little background, uh, I was raised in a conservative rural town. Uh, I didn't have any openly gay friends or family. My feelings toward the concept of homosexuality was at least some discomfort, um, with a dose of judgment. As the leaders of the church I was raised in taught me that those acts were against God. College wasn't much different. Uh, Those who were openly gay were not typically in my classes or in my social groups. Um, I was not really forced to consider them um, in any real way or interact with them on any regular basis. It was during my medical education that I began to see things differently. Learning about neurologic and genital development forced me to reconsider sexual orientation. During formation of our organs and brain, various hormonal fluctuations um, will cause us to become either male or female. Um, This is through the direct relationship of our chromosomes and our genetic makeup. We all learned about this in high school. What's more recently understood is that hormonal fluctuations and balance can actually affect our sexual preference probably at the level of the developing brain. Androgens, which are hormones from the testosterone family, are found in higher levels in males before birth and after. But there are lots of studies out there who actually demonstrate that these androgens, or the male hormones, in a higher level in the female fetus will cause that female to have a higher likelihood of being gay. And this pattern persists even if that hormonal imbalance is treated soon after birth and throughout her life. This biologic basis of sexual orientation argues against treating homosexuality as a choice or a disease. There's no scientifically based reason to look down upon those with different sexual preferences. 
Understanding this allows me to see everyone as a child of God. Their sexual preference or gender identity, which they did not choose, but which is a product of their genetic makeup, is not against God, even if it is in the minority. These are undisputed facts of biochemistry. But like most cases in anatomy and physiology, it's more complicated than what we completely understand. There is actually a spectrum of genital formation between male and female, just like there is a spectrum of human sexuality. Not everyone is specifically heterosexual or homosexual. This has been well described sociologically. My opinion is that biochemistry has not yet caught up to explain the well-established observations, that at some point we will know and realize the various hormonal and genetic differences that result in these various points along the spectrum of human sexuality. Until it does, I don't know why these differences exist. I just know that I need to respect those who live their different traits and preferences. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. He's a good friend and uh, takes a lot of courage um, to speak in front of people when you know that there's just not unity around that. So we come to experience, um, and I'll close with this. Um, I've, I've changed over time. Um, when I went to, uh, when I first started ministry, Chantel was at a staff uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, there we are. I was 23. She was 22. Isn't she cute? Um, it was Easter. Um, there we lived about a block away, and we were in an apartment complex. And across the way, uh, there was a man, probably 10, 15 years older than I was, named Mike. Um, we struck up a conversation. Um, and, I mean, if you were betting, you would bet he was gay. I mean, he, he looked gay. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, but kind of, I mean, you just sort of like, well, he's probably gay. And um, we got to talking, and, and sure enough, um, everything that he talked about made me lead, led me to believe that that was the case. Um, and I just finally asked him, I said, well, you know, he asked me about me, and I was working on TV at the time. And, and I said, well, he asked me to a 12-step group he was going to. I did. It was super smoky. And um, I invited him to church. And so, so he said, yeah, they came to church. Uh, we, we joined the handbell choir together. And um, we did Bible study together. And over time, he gave his life to Jesus. And he followed Jesus with a whole bunch of old, smoking, tobacco ladies uh, in North Carolina. And, and it was awesome. He found a family because he had been largely disowned from his. And it was, it was a beautiful thing. And then we went to Tulsa, and I went to seminary, and I learned all the stuff I was supposed to learn. I, I knew the lines I was supposed to keep, and so I, I got all that in me, and I, I had the party line. I started going down the way, and uh, Mike came out to uh, visit us when, in Minko, of all places, from Charlotte. Uh, imagine a gay man coming to rural Oklahoma. Now, there's some courage there as well. Um, this is early 90s, or late 90s at this point. Um, and he never fully came out to us. We just had uh, John Mark, our, our oldest, and uh, Noah wasn't yet around. And he goes back to Charlotte. And about three weeks after his visit, he calls me and he says, hey, I just want you to know I'm gay. I was like, golly, are you kidding me? Like, of course you're gay. I mean, I've known that all along. Um, 
and he was interested in, in a, a, a partner, and he'd found a meaningful relationship and less chaos in his life. And, and then he said something I'll never forget. He said, I hope you're happy for me. And that, that line, through all my training through seminary, it, it, just, it just had sort of an emotive hit for me. And I, I've, it was one of those things like, well, no, I, I'm a pastor now. I've got I to say what pastors say. And so I said to him, well, no, I'm not happy for you. I was 28 at the time. No, no, I'm not, I'm not happy for you. I, I think that's tragic. I mean, your life is difficult as it is. This is going to make it harder. Uh, I want you to be like me. I want you to have a wife. Uh, like I have, like Chantel, and have children and, and have the full range of human expression. That's what I, that's what I pray for you. Like, that's what I, I want for you. That's really, that's my hope for you. I'm not happy about it. I mean, I love you and I accept you, but you know, I'm not happy about it. And the phone just, just went silent. And he, we said some pleasantries and hung up and we never talked again. And about three years ago, four or five years ago now, friend of mine called and told me that Mike had been murdered. There's not much I regret about my ministry over 25 years. I regret that. I've never been settled in my spirit ever since. I, I think I, I did him wrong. Well-meaningly. I mean, I, I, I did my best. But it wasn't right. I know that now. I, I knew that then. I just didn't know what to do about it. Because I let an issue and a culture shape me more than Jesus called to love my neighbor as I would want to be loved. Because I wouldn't want somebody telling me that they're not happy about who I am. I just, I mean, that's, just, that's a book on me about experience. So here's the thing. More than anything else, I want us to love one another wherever we are. And if you are on one place I'm going to love you, and if you're in another place, I'm going to love you. And, and that's important. So John 17, this is Jesus' prayer for the church. This is one of the last prayers he prays before um, the end of his life. And I want you to read it with me, because this is our prayer for all of us, for all of us together. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. So that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. We are to be one. So as our action step, I want to ask you this question. What would it look like? To love the LGBTQ community as you love yourself. You may have never thought about that before. But if we're going to love our neighbors ourselves, they're, they're one of our neighbors. How do you do that? What would that look like in your life? I'm not going to prescribe that for you. Ask the Holy Spirit, how, how do I do that? And if you're struggling this morning, anywhere in this conversation, I want to close with this story. A caring mother was asked by a friend which of her three children she loved the most. And she replied that she loved them all equally, as all smart parents do. Her friend refused that answer, though, and pressed her, 
She said, no, 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 answer truthfully. And the mom became quiet. And then she firmly responded, okay, I love them all the same. But when one of them struggles and is in trouble, then my heart goes out to that child the most. Isn't that true? I think that captures the heart of God. So just know if you're struggling this morning, the heart of God is with you, wherever you find yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are enough. Lord Jesus, that you are enough. And we do pray for the unity of your church, that you would place our identity not in our sexuality, but in you, in Christ alone, our hope and our salvation, the very salvation of the world. And let Acts 2 be a place where we are known for our love, not for our politics, not for our policies, not for our positions, but for our love for you and for the world. May it be so in Jesus' mighty name who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.